Okay, we, uh, we're not going to start too funny here uh, in this show because uh, we had some interesting comments from Dan Swanstrom head coach of Ithaca College after his team beat Hobart, sorry, JB, on Saturday. Um, you know, a lot of people think he's kind of a strict authoritarian type uh, on that field and everything else, but he kind of opened up to us about what COVID taught him ultimately and helped him realize in his own life, and I think it's worth hearing one more time here. Hey, I feel like I've gained a lot of perspective, you know, I, a lot of perspective of... You know, I hard on myself, hard on my team. You know, um, high expectations. You know, I I'll be honest with you. You know, 19. You know, I was probably in the worst shape of my life, um, not working out, not doing what I needed to do. You know, spending not enough time with my family and being vacant. And um, I'm just trying to do it all now, and uh, and trying to balance and trying to understand. You know, I'm going to prepare this team to the best of my ability every single day and every single week, and. There's things that are just out of my control that I just can't worry about. And, um, and that has gave me so much more joy with coaching this team, so much more joy with being with the staff and doing the things that I love to do professionally. Because, you know, the truth is, that, you know, like this isn't this isn't a job for me this is a way of life and uh me and my family live it every single day and uh and to add a little bit of perspective through that that probably is a good thing for me you look like you're ready to play linebacker right now so you've obviously gotten the shape back and everything else and your, your team has as well at 4-0 yeah. now and uh with a tough schedule ahead of them but gotta enjoy this one a little bit congratulations thank you thank you and thanks for the compliment too you know uh, um I, I took advantage of the uh, the time in quarantine and got myself um, back to where I need to be, um, and also setting a standard for our program of um, you know what hard work looks like day in and day out. Instead of me talking about it, I want to show them um, by my ability. But my body maybe isn't as I don't rebound like I used to. It's getting tougher. <laughs> I have to I have to take some things out of the, the workouts that I've been doing and take care of my body a little bit better. How old are you now? I'm 38. I'm 45. It gets harder. Let me tell you something. Keep at it. Thanks, Congratulations. Man. You, you know, words to live by there. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's yeah. 38, as he said at the end of that uh, little back and forth we had. Uh, and, again, those uh, interviews are on Twitter. Uh, within about 24 hours of each game, we'll put those uh, post-game interviews when I go out to games. Uh, now 10 games in five weeks. I'll settle down a little bit now uh, as night games start going by the wayside. But uh, his uh, thoughts about things, I, I was a little bit surprised about uh, his candor there about his own shape, his own family life, and everything else uh, pre-COVID, and sort of realizing through it just how important a lot of other things I was taking for granted are at this point in time. And I, I, I knew that would hit you pretty hard, uh, JB, because we've talked about it offline quite a bit. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, there's a guy who just recently had a, had a physical, you know, I'm like, hey, trying to take care of myself, too. I'm a, I'm a little bit older than, than Coach Swanstrom. And, um, you know, it's one of those things that, yeah, we, we've talked on this podcast a lot about, you know, taking, uh, taking football for granted, taking certain things for granted that happened through, um, you know, the, the last couple of years. And I do feel like if there is one positive thing that comes out of this whole COVID era is, you know, some people having the time to be, you know, kind of introspective, uh, you're a little bit isolated, you know, type of thing. Um, but you can make, you can make good with that by taking care of yourself, taking care of the people around you. And, uh, it sounds like coach Swanson really embraced that. And, um, Hey, four and start for Ithaca. It seems to be working.
Yeah, passed it on to the team, that's for sure, uh, his own uh, mentality and thoughts on uh, life at this Absolutely. point. But still on that sideline, getting on him when they do the wrong things. Don't you worry about that. Uh, but he was pretty calm <laughs> as uh, things turned around. He, he, he was pretty measured about his approach because he had a confidence in that team to come back as they fell behind 21-14 to win it. 28-21 more on that game and several more here as we enter our Week 5 Crunch Time show for Season 14 of In the Huddle. a lot to cover here uh we're bringing on wally wabash folks wally wabash is joining us in the show greg thomas yes uh little giants always fight and uh they certainly did this week and he's going to fight to tell us about the region by region approach on pool c and the playoffs generally uh normally we tell you about where we think things are and whatnot well we wanted to bring in somebody that actually could tell you with some good authority on this subject. Uh, he doesn't make the decisions, as we'll joke around with him about later, but uh, he does at least give us some clarity throughout the season on d3football.com. Uh, otherwise, uh, we're going to crunch time, but first, as is our tradition, JB's going to give you the 30,000-foot view of Week 5. Yeah, well, Week 5 with full-blown conference play in effect, we saw... Um, a lot more close games, uh, about a quarter of the 111, give or take. I think there was one cancellation. Um, so a lot of these games either came down to one to three points, and then there was a little grouping that came down between a touchdown or less. So a lot of exciting close games, particularly, you know, we saw with, you know, Ithaca Hobart, Franks had about an eight-game streak now of the ones he's attended that have been settled by a touchdown or less. Courage Bowl, a little more of a cushion of victory. We'll talk about that later, uh, but quite a run for you, my friend. And, you know, the, the great part about these conference games kicking off is that we're now starting to get a little bit of a sense of where some of these undefeated teams, which are now not undefeated teams, are going to, you know, how, how does their season sort of stack up now? Where do they um, end up in the grand scheme of things? Because, you know, we're almost at the halfway point and, and the games are just going to get tougher and probably closer and more exciting as we push our way towards elite week 11. Well, let's talk about week five before we talk about week 11 here. And it was a good week, as you pointed out. So let's go over the games. This is crunch time for week five of the fall 2021 Division Three college football season. to start in region one as we normally do someday we'll shuffle up these regions i have a feeling when things uh, get, get yeah. a little bit more uh weighty uh, toward uh, the end uh we'll uh put the uh most important ones at the end how's that sound we'll, we'll, we'll build a drama here in crunch time at some point but first let's talk about region one this go around and that's western new england hosting salve regina and nine minutes into the game western new england's ej dudley gets a three-yard touchdown run 
to make it 7-0 Western New England. Uh, a field goal was added by Salve Regina in the mix, but halfway through the second quarter, uh, this sounds like I'm on repeat, so just bear with me. Western New England had a touchdown run from three yards out by E.J. Dudley to make it a 14-3 uh, game. Then in the third quarter, with 6.13 left, Western New England had a touchdown run from E.J. Dudley from three yards out for a 21-3 score. Uh, they end up winning 41-3. Those three touchdowns were the only three by E.J. Dudley, but that's plenty. Ah. It's a score uh, would never get close in this game, 41-3. The defense for Western New England held Salve Regina to 51 rushing yards, had a sack, an interception, five tackles for loss. That EJ Dudley with those three rushing touchdowns. Then let's talk about Alvernia at Kings. It was a 3-0 game in favor of Kings after a 28-yard Kyle Prescavage field goal at the end of the first quarter. And it stayed that way until the first play of the fourth quarter when Alvernia's Nico Skurlock gets a 33-yard pass from Kevin Washington 10 seconds into the fourth quarter. So basically the first play, it was 7-3 to yep. Alvernia. But a 15-play drive started later on with 5.53 left for Kings, and they faced a fourth and six after a false start. Let's see what happens. Moore dropping back, has some pressure, and time. Basella makes the catch, and he's in for the first down at the 20-yard line. So they stay alive here, and now with 29 seconds left, they have one more chance. Drops back, has a lane up the middle. He's got the first down, up the middle. He's in for the touchdown! Kings College take the lead off Moore, finding a lane up the middle and charging right through it. They get the 11-yard touchdown run from Tyler Moore to take a 10-7 lead. And then a chance at the end for Alvernia. Kevin Washington's pass was incomplete to Antoine Cade, and that will do it. Uh, the defense obviously affecting things there at the very end. It's 10-7 in favor of Kings. And again, the 11-yard game-winning touchdown rush by Tyler Moore, 29 seconds left is uh, discussed there. Nico Skurlock, 11 receptions, 103 yards, and a touchdown. Then, JB, I'm going to have you chime in after this one for sure because this was a game. Merchant Marine hosting WPI. They were tied at 14 at halftime, but Merchant Marine took the lead on a Jackson Tinkus field goal early in the third quarter, making it 17 to 14. Let's go to the highlights. Five minutes into the third quarter, Joe Coucher with a 56-yard pass from Brendan Alexa makes it 21 to 17 in favor of WPI. Then our friend Jaden Daly is going to tell you about Matt Strong. First down, Merchant Marine. Blankenship pitches it. Matt Strong across the 30, down the left sideline. Strong still on his feet. Gets some real estate. Matt Strong with one man to beat, and he is clear. Touchdown, Merchant Marine. Matt Strong redeems himself. 80 yards to the end zone, and the Mariners are back in front. That 80-yard touchdown run made it 24-21 Merchant Marine, but WPI from the Wildcat gets a one-yard Brandon Wynn run for the touchdown. It makes it 28-24 WPI just before the end of the third quarter. Halfway through the fourth, Al Kiernan gets a four-yard touchdown run for Merchant Marine. Back and forth we go, 31-28 Merchant Marine. WPI's drive started their ensuing drive with 8.54 on the clock, JB. Let's look at first the 13th play of the drive, which is first and goal from the Merchant Marine 8 as Brandon Wynn gets a 7-yard rush to the 1-yard line. Merchant Marine takes a timeout, 
Second down and goal. Brandon Wynn rushes for a one-yard loss here. Timeout Merchant Marine. So now for the 15th play of the drive. Third and goal at the two-yard line. Luizzi rushes for a yard to the one-yard line. Final timeout. 16th play of the drive. Jaden Daly take it away. Direct snap. Luizzi is brought down. Short! Merchant Marine! at the most opportune time, comes away with a monumental defensive stand. Tommy Joyce, the sophomore, forcing a turnover on downs. Unbelievable goal line stand by Merchant Marine Academy to win the game 31-28. It's their first 4-0 starts since 1997. Ian Blankenship with a total of 348 yards and a rushing touchdown on the day. How about them Mariners? I mean, just the resiliency is just, uh, it's something else. And, you know, on one hand, my, my heart breaks a little for Coach Rob's uh, engineers. I mean, WPI is probably the best one in four team in, in this region, if not in, in the north, the entire Northeast. They, they keep fighting um, really tough and they, they've come close a few times here, but you got to give credit to the, to the Mariners. I mean, that defense dug in and made the plays they needed to, to, to get that win. What else do you see in region one, sir? Well, as we said, there were a bunch of close games. Um, that Del Val Lyco 32-7 game was a lot closer than that final score. Um, re really kind of tells the tells the story. Uh, SUNY Maritime with a close one. Endicott outlast Curry. You can see Wilkes uh, wins by a touchdown. Got to give some uh, shout out to Coach Mulroney at uh, at Anna Maria. That's a program uh, best start for them at three and one. Uh, they're definitely on a better track now, and I'm happy for him and those guys. FTU Florham winning 27-3 over a previously undefeated Widener was probably the biggest surprise for me, Frank. The rest of the scores you can kind of see, I mean, Wesleyan hangs on against Bates. Uh, there was a couple other close games like Amherst over Tufts, but for the most part, and oh yeah, the mug goes back to Vermont. You got to give credit to uh, the cadets. That was a game we thought that the Coast Guard might have, Frank, but the, uh, the Norwich cadets proved us wrong, and uh, certainly credit to them uh, in that effort. Indeed, and so now let's go to Region 2, where we have uh, four games we're going to show you some video from. And first off, uh, Hobart at Ithaca. You saw it on Twitter, probably, uh, our video for this game, but we'll uh, compile it here. And in the second quarter, a minute into it, A.J. Wingfield tucks it under and runs for 27 yards for the touchdown and a 7-0 Ithaca lead. Then on a second and 20 play at the Hobart 40, David Krusen had a pass intercepted by Anthony Robinson at the 45-yard line of Ithaca and returned it to the Hobart 26. That led to an 8-yard touchdown run by Jalen Leonard Osborne. So it's 14-0 Ithaca. They're cruising there until the very end of the first half. Eight seconds left. Tim Denham Jr. takes the Wildcat uh, snap for a 6-yard touchdown run. It's 14-7 Ithaca at halftime. In the third quarter, Rayshon Boswell gets an 11-yard touchdown pass from David Krusen to tie the game up at 14-14. And just about, what, four minutes later or so, uh, Boswell gets a 70-yard run. You're seeing a piece of it here, at least, because we uh, couldn't get the entire thing in. But 21-14, it's Hobart with the lead. They score 21 straight. But then Ithaca would, re would respond. 231 left in the third quarter. Jalen Hines with a six-yard touchdown run made it 21-21. And then in the fourth quarter, 
8.54 left. Andrew Vito gets a 30-yard touchdown pass from A.J. Wingfield to make it 28-21 Ithaca. Hobart would get two chances. Uh, one drive that they were forced to kick away on, or actually uh, they failed on, I should say. Uh, Ithaca could not convert, and so they got the ball back after a punt by Ithaca. And David Cruzen got his team down the field to goal to, or near goal-to-go situation, actually the 16-yard line of Ithaca. And here's the final play. Ball slips out of his hands. It's a third down. He had a chance to scoop that ball, throw it away, and live to fight in another play. But instead, he tucks it, tries to run, gets one yard in the play, tackled in bounds. The clock expires. The game is over. Ithaca wins 28-21. to Wingfield, 17 for 21. 221, a passing and a rushing touchdown. Rayshon Boswell on the other side, 188 total yards, rushing and receiving touchdown. Wingfield, though, uh, kudos to him with those stats. 17 for 21 is a day for sure against that Hobart defense. Susquehanna at your sinus. And uh, we're going to focus on the second quarter here. As Susquehanna had a 14-7 lead heading into it. With 12.05 left second quarter, Frankie Negrini gets a 16-yard touchdown run to make it 21-7 Susquehanna. The kickoff was landed on, as you'll see here, the ensuing kickoff by Susquehanna after a muff by your sinus. And so only seven seconds later from the previous touchdown, Eddie Nugent gets a 21-yard touchdown pass from Michael Roosh. It's a 28-7 Susquehanna lead. Well, your sinus does try to respond with 9.35 left. Dash Delgarian gets his 56-yard touchdown pass from Jack Siniska, making it 28-14 Susquehanna. But too much Susquehanna in this game, in this quarter particularly. Michael Lefevre gets a 50-yard touchdown pass from Michael Roosh with six minutes left second quarter, 35-14 Susquehanna. It was a 31-point second quarter for Susquehanna in this game on way to a 62-23 win. Roosh with a 27-day 307 on yardage, five touchdowns and an interception. The Susquehanna defense gets two fumble recoveries and interception, four sacks included in those five tackles for loss. Then Brockport at St. John Fisher for Courage Bowl 16. We'll start uh, after Brockport takes a 3-0 lead on an early field goal with Lawrence Jenkins with this long interception return to make it 10-0 in favor of Brockport. Then on the next drive for St. John Fisher, Joseph Torillo had his pass intercepted, basically just torn away by Allen Montgomery of Brockport to give them a chance to score, and score they did later on with 321 left. Jale Code gets a five-yard touchdown run, get used to that name in this game, and it made it 17-0. Later, though, in the third quarter, 1158 left, it's Tyshawn Sizer getting a short pass from Joseph Trillo and extending it the rest of the way. You're seeing a piece of it here. 17-7, Brockport leads as Fisher was trying to come back here. But it was really too little too late as Code on his 45th carry of the night gets to the 240-yard mark rushing in his third rushing touchdown here. The 70-yard touchdown run made it 34-7. I almost get knocked down, but you don't care about that. You care about the fact that Brockport wins. 34 to 7. And it's a fourth straight Courage Bowl win by Brockport in this series. Uh, Jale Code with those uh, three touchdowns and a defense, three interceptions, three sacks, seven tackles for losses, seven pass breakups by Brockport. Finally, in Region 2, I'll let JB have uh, plenty of time to talk about all these games in a moment here. Kane and Christopher Newport, uh, pretty close game throughout. Uh, some uh, interesting uh, separation at times. We'll show you here. 
Uh, Christopher Newport led 7-3 midway through the second quarter, but this happened here on a punt by CNU, specifically Dante Jamison muffing the ball, but still collecting it and running 60 yards for the touchdown. Great job by him, 6.34 left second quarter to make it 10-7 Kane. The teams would trade field goals, uh, and along the way here, it's basically a Kane lead, 13-10, and Kane would add on to it a minute and a half into the fourth quarter as Justin Lucia gets the one-yard touchdown run to make it 20-10 Kane. But Christopher Newport would come back like they've done several times this season, it feels like. 9.22 left in the fourth quarter. Aaron Williams with a one-yard touchdown run, making it 20-17 Kane. And then 3.43 left. It's Ryan Castle getting a 39-yard field goal to tie it up at 20 apiece. We would go to overtime as Miles Toppin on Kane's uh, half the uh, overtime. We get a two-yard touchdown pass from Justin Lucia to make it 27-20 Kane. On the next play from offense, this is CNU's half of overtime. Matt Dzerski is intercepted by Kion Taylor. Uh, the penalty flags you might be seeing here are declined ultimately as they are against the offense. And Kane wins the game in overtime 27-20. Lucia with those two touchdowns, one rushing, one passing. And Kion Taylor with that game-winning interception in overtime. JB, Region 2 doesn't have as many scores but seem to have as much action as any region this week yeah yeah definitely and even though there were you know a few games that were a little out of hand early on for the most part very competitive um kind of across the centennial empire liberty and and new jersey conferences um one of the games that we kind of just didn't have space for in this frank was the um william patterson tc and j game that came down to basically three uh, bobby wortman field goals that that helped them you know, come back and, and hang on for that one. They they kicked the final 40-yarder with about 14 minutes left to go in the fourth quarter. So maybe not the same dramatic endings that we saw in Ithaca Hobart or uh, Kane and Christopher Newport. Hey, congrats to the Cougs. Some of the things, sometimes, Frank, the best thing about conference play is even if you have a rough start, you can feel 1-0 um, right off the bat, and that's got to be a good feeling for them. No doubt, no doubt at all. That's why we look at this uh, conference season as kind of the second season of our uh, you know, 2021 fall here. Uh, let's talk about Region 3 that has been in some level of conference play already uh, heading into this week, and it hasn't gotten any easier for any of the teams uh, in these regional games, that's for sure. Uh, first, it's Washington Jefferson at Geneva. And Geneva had a 7-0 lead early. Well, make that 14-0 as Peyton Shell gets an 8-yard touchdown pass from Amos Luptek. Now, remember, this is a triple option team, Geneva, yet a lot of the highlights you're going to see are passes. So they lull you to sleep, and then they uh, strike downfield on you. That's what happens with these teams. Washington and Jefferson would respond 9.33 left in the second quarter. Andrew Wolf gets a 26-yard pass from Justin Heacock to make it 14-7 Geneva. The halftime score after a Sean Disbro field goal would be 14-10 Geneva, though. Six minutes into the third quarter, Geneva's Peyton Shell again from 47 yards out this time from Luptak gets a 20-10 score on the scoreboard in favor of Geneva. To about a minute and a half later, W&J would respond with an E.J. Thompson 10-yard touchdown run. Now it's 20-17 Geneva. 9.54 left, fourth quarter. Andrew Wolf again from Justin Heacock, this time from 19 yards out. Makes it 24 to 20 W and J. Geneva did get the ball back eventually with 4:39 left in the 10th play of the drive. Amos Luptak is intercepted by Justin Johns, and that would do it. Final score as Washington Jefferson holds on 24 to 20 in their favor. 
And Justin Heacock had a 22 for 32 day for WJ, 318 yards and two touchdowns. They needed all of that to win that game. Next up, it is Bridgewater at Shenandoah. What a game here. Let's show you in the second quarter, 635 left, Bridgewater's uh, Dylan McLaughlin gets a 17-yard touchdown pass from Matt Lawton. That's 24-0 Bridgewater. Okay, we should just show the scoreboards over, right? No. Halftime score would be 24-7 as Shenandoah does get a touchdown before halftime. Four minutes into the third quarter, Brant Butler does this. Deep ball again. Brant Butler is out there, and he is in for a touchdown. Brant Butler, couple of deep balls on this drive, including the touchdown strike. That 31-yard touchdown pass from Stephen Hugney made it 24-14 Bridgewater. Uh, they do get another touchdown uh, early in the fourth quarter. It's Bird getting a five-yard touchdown run to make it 24-20 Bridgewater. So here comes Shenandoah, just four points behind. And then Bridgewater does respond a little bit here with a Jackson Hendren 47-yard field goal. Good job by him to get that one in with five minutes left in the fourth quarter. It's 27-20 Bridgewater. 3.20 left. Let's hear what happens. On second down and five. Turn, give to Rashadine. First down and more. Bird to the 10, to the 5. Touchdown! Touchdown, Rashadine! That hole was big enough to drive a great train through. And Rashadine split it and was untouched until about the 10 yard line. Bird with his second touchdown run in this half makes it 27 27. We are not done yet, though, here as Shenandoah's Brant Butler with 27 seconds left does this. Going for it all. Target. Back of the end zone. And it is touchdown. Touchdown, Shenandoah. He made the catch. Grant Butler. Grant Butler made the catch. The Hornets have come all the way back. I had to wait because defender and receiver were fighting for the ball. He gets that 13-yard touchdown reception from Hugney. Makes it 34-24. There is a chance at the end for... Bridgewater to maybe tie this game. Timeout over by Shenandoah. Lawton takes it in the gun. Throws toward the end zone. And it is knocked away. The Hornets win in historic fashion. Coming from 24-0 down. And that will do it. 34-27 Shenandoah with a 24-point comeback in this game. Starting in the second quarter. And Hugney with 19 for 32, 288 yards, three touchdowns, two interceptions. But most of the good stats came in the second half, you have to imagine, as uh, he turned things around with that game-winning pass with 27 seconds left, highlighting that one. Finally, let's go to another ODAC game. It's Washington and Lee at Hampton, Sydney. You and I were watching this with a little bit of uh, anticipation because of our prediction section mm -hmm. on Friday. Halftime score was Hampton-Sydney leading 10-8. to Now, note... I think all but one touchdown by Washington Lee were two-point conversions after the touchdowns. I'm not 100% sure why, but just keep that in mind as we go through these highlights. First in the third quarter, a minute and a half in, let's hear what happens. Trips now right, rolling right, looking to pass, going downfield, got his man, Calabocas, touchdown, caught it to five, He's, no one's getting him, wouldn't be down in touch football. Perfect strike by Bernard, and just like that, Hampton is on the ball from 42 yards Nick Kalavokis with that 42-yard touchdown pass from Tanner Bernard makes it 17-8 Hampton-Sydney. But Washington Lee with 5.53 left would get an Alex Vott two-yard touchdown reception from Stephen Murren to make it 17-16 Hampton-Sydney as they went for two again. 
Washington lead in the first play of the fourth quarter. We get a 70-yard pass from Murren to Kobe Kirkland. As Washington Lee again goes for two and takes a full 24-17 lead. About two minutes later, Dylan Costello gets a 42-yard touchdown pass for Hampton Sydney from Tanner Bernard, tying the game back up at 24 apiece. Then Josh Brees for Washington Lee back and forth. Another one of these games. A 15-yard touchdown run by Brees makes it 32-24 Washington Lee. Again, they they went for two there and were successful. Hampton Sydney would get a chance with 29 seconds left. From the right to left, Kayla Smith jump pass to Ed Newman, got the catch, touchdown. Beautiful jump ball right there from Caleb Smith to Ed Newman, tying it up. Excuse me, making it 32-30. Well, what matters now on a 32-30 score is the two-point conversion. Bowling comes slot left now. Bernard looking to pass, heavy pressure on. He's just going to throw it and underneath, no flags. As the receiver went down, Kalavokas, and just heavy pressure on. But then there's an onside kick opportunity. To be live, he gets the high hop. Who got it? Hampton Sydney did get it. The Tigers have it. Got this ball at about the 48-yard line. It was a great onside kick. Took that high hop. And Tanner Bernard would have a chance to give his team uh, at least a chance to win this game. Right. Multiple guys staying in the block, looking to throw deep. Bernard going to air it out in the middle of the field. One guy out there is bowling, trying to catch it among about five defenders and not going to be able to get it. I don't see any flags down. Incomplete, and that will do it. Washington and Lee, what a game for them two straight weeks. Beats Hampton City this time, 32-30, moving themselves to 4-1 and 3-0 in the league right now. Something to take note of in the ODAC. Six lead changes in the game. Brees with 18 rushes, 91 yards, two touchdowns. Bernard, 22 for 34, 393 yards, two passing, and one rushing touchdown in the loss. Great stats for him. Just couldn't get them all the way back there. Region 3, JB. Yeah, um, certainly... Not a ton of close games. We pretty much highlighted the ones that, that we had. I mean, you got to credit the generals. They, it's, it's still kind of a head scratcher for me, Frank. How did they, they lose to CNU in, in week one? But they're getting a lot of great experience of, of hanging on and winning now these close games, and um, certainly making a case to be the you know, top of the the ODAC, pending on. Uh, the rest of the season. Uh, credit to Coach Yoder and company, 24 points. I think it's the biggest deficit the Hornets program has ever overcome. Uh, and then elsewhere, one of the scores that jumps out, Frank, St. Vincent uh, beating Case Western 42 to 40. That game was interesting in that it started off with, you know, Case and a 14 to nothing lead. And then uh, St. Vincent tied it up and then basically never trailed for the rest of the game. And down the, down the road, Case would score to kind of keep up, but they would miss their extra points. So ultimately it came down to a point late fourth quarter uh, where St. Vincent uh, scored another touchdown. They went up 42 to 33 and basically Case just ran out of time. And if they had made those uh, two point conversion and a PAT, maybe they could have forced OT, uh, but the, uh, and the Vinnies <laughs> got, got the win. They did and a big program win for them. I know they've been wanting to beat Case for a while here. Denison yep. at Wabash, and at halftime, this game was 17-14, to Wabash leading, but Denison starts the second half with a bang, specifically Jalen Epps with his 93-yard kickoff return for touchdown. That made it a 21-17 Denison lead. They added a field goal 11 minutes later for a 7-point lead, but Wabash would respond. 
Cooper Sullivan with 28 seconds left in the third quarter gets a six-yard touchdown pass from Liam Thompson. 24-24 tie now. We'll go all the way to the 246 mark in the fourth quarter as Donovan Snyder would give Wabash a one-yard touchdown run and a seven-point lead. But Dennison would score again. Dawkins, some pressure. Throws it deep in the corner of the end zone. Caught, touchdown, flag on the play. Johnson makes the catch in the corner of the end zone. That 27-yard touchdown reception by DJ Johnson makes it 31-31. And guess what? We are going to overtime. Dennison scores first. Trey Fabricini with the two-yard touchdown run makes it 38-31. Dennison. Wabash would respond with a Donovan Snyder one-yard touchdown run to make it 39-38. They decide to go for two. And with this triple motion uh, going here, this is one of their specialty two-point pass uh, packages, I have a feeling. The pass back to the weak side is good, and Claiborne uh, gets that reception. It makes it a 39-38 final with a walk-off two-point conversion. How many times are we going to say that over these uh, weeks, it seems like? Walk-off two-point conversions, uh, ending games for two straight weeks that we've been talking of. And 39-38 final, Wabash. Liam Thompson, 336 total yards, three passing touchdowns, uh, game-winning two-point uh, pass play to tight end Jackson Claiborne, as you just saw. We will not show video from Wittenberg at Ohio Wesleyan, although we will tell you it was a great game, 24-23, a 19-yard field goal with seven seconds left by Brandon Goodwin is the decider here, and Austin Womack from Ohio Wesleyan in the losing effort gets a 15-for-21 day 211 yards and three touchdowns. Finally, in terms of highlights at least, Manchester at Franklin. Remember, Manchester beat Franklin a couple years ago. It was one of their last wins, if not their last win uh, that they had. It's been a loss fest for them, unfortunately, though they've had some good chances along the way. Manchester's up 9-7 midway through the second quarter, and Joseph Powell gets a 62-yard touchdown pass from Trevor O'Brien. This was a freshman QB inserted for this play, had not played previous in the game or season, and a 62-yard touchdown pass to make it 16-7 Manchester. Franklin would respond in the second half, though, as Jared Gibson gets a 6-yard touchdown pass from Dane Andrews to make it 16-14, still Manchester's lead. Franklin, though, would score 17 straight through the fourth quarter and ultimately would take a 24-16 lead when Manchester responds. Midway through the th fourth quarter, David Smith with a one-yard touchdown run makes it 24-24. Hey, guess what, JB? We're going to bonus football again here in overtime. Franklin, on a third and ten here, we're going to show you. Dane Andrews tries to pass as he's being chased, throws it away, intentional grounding. It takes them out of field goal range, incomplete on fourth down. And so they are basically, you know, no points in their half of overtime, allowing Manchester win with a field goal. Well, they don't make very well themselves. They lose seven yards in their half of overtime. Andrew Kibler, what happens? 49. It's up as the distance, but it's good. He made it. He just dropped it in. Andrew Kibler wins it for Manchester. And a 10-game losing streak dating back two years is over. It's good from 49 yards out. Manchester wins the game. The celebration wow. is huge. They win it 27-24 against Franklin. Their first win since November 16, 2019. The 10-game losing streak is broken. 
Kipler, two for three on field goals, but he won't remember the loss. He will remember the 49-yard game winner, JB, regions four through six. Yeah, and well, as you can kind of see from, from this and then the, the next slide, there was close to 60 games in these three regions, and it's kind of hard to keep track of all of them, but a few that really stand out other than the ones we just highlighted, um, Frank, the McMurray-Harden-Simmons uh, game coming down to three points, not what a lot of people expected of, uh, after Harden-Simmons took uh, the Crusaders to, to the limit uh, almost in, in that game you attended a week or so ago. Um, Oshkosh and Platteville was also a little closer than some might have thought. You got to give the Pioneers some credit. They battled back and hung around in that one. Um, River Falls lacrosse is a game that we that we picked. Uh, lacrosse seems to be, you know, the, the clear um, better of those two and, and remains in the top 25 or from, from several uh, different polls. Uh, Ohio Northern won a close one, 34 to 33 over Marietta out in the OAC. Um, other region four through six games that, that kind of jumped out to me, Frank, I guess you could say um, Aurora putting up 70 points may not be a surprise. Uh, that was obviously a big win for them. Um, elsewhere in the ARC, uh, Nebraska Wesleyan uh, wins 28 to 21. Uh, other other interesting games, I guess, as you get further out to the West, Chicago keeps winning with a 45 to 10 uh, victory over Knox out in Southern California. Redlands beats Claremont by uh, three points in, in a close one. And then, holy smokes, this Howard Payne team, I, I saw some fan on Twitter complaining that they weren't ranked in the top 10. And if you can put up 73 points, that's one thing. They will get their opportunity, though. Um, they had already already beaten ETBU, uh, but they're going to get their chance against teams like Harden, Simmons, and and. Um, it should be interesting to see how good are these jackets. And then to wrap things up, I guess, Frank, Cal Lutheran um, out in my old stomping grounds in Thousand Oaks with a 35 to 14 win. Just a lot of action across the board in these three regions. Jim Catanzaro told me about Chicago a few weeks ago. He seems to be right about them so far. And that is crunch time for week five of the fall 2021 Division Three college football season. JB, before we bring in Greg Thomas uh, to talk about all those uh, regions and the implications on potential playoff uh, scenarios and whatnot, let's talk about JB's Week 5 MVPs. Well, this time, Frank, we'll start right down the middle because that's where uh, senior place kicker Andrew Kibler hit that 49-yard field goal. Um, now, I know TCNJ's kicker had you know, three field goals that basically helped his team get a win, but a 49 yarder at the D3 level for a team that hadn't won a game in 10 tries, it had to go with, uh, with Andrew. So congratulations on, on helping your team get a very hard fought victory. Um, offensively, this was a tough call, Frank, because there were guys out there like uh, Royce from Susquehanna, five touchdown game. Um, Wyatt Smith with Linfield had a five uh, passing, one rushing yard um, touchdown game. But I'm going to go with uh, senior quarterback Blaine Hawkins from Central, who has this team just cranking out points at a high level. Um, he had six passing touchdowns this past weekend. And this Central team, I mean, I know a lot of folks are going to talk about the the Whitewaters and, and the UMHBs out there in kind of the, the upper and lower Midwest, but there's there is literally a central team in the central part of the country that is really, really good. And so we got to keep an eye on, on this uh, Hawkins guy and his, the rest of his teammates. Um, defensively, had to go with, uh, you know, 
I heard it on around the nation and we'll talk to Greg in a, in a minute, but you could have given a, a, a game ball or an MVP to the entire um, Aggies defense, but uh, junior defensive back Jameer Prevard stands out to me. He had two of the five interceptions that the Aggies uh, had and his pick six really helped turn the momentum of the game um, towards the Aggies' favor because they, they were kind of struggling a little bit there with uh, with Leko for a, a bit. Uh, and he took it back, and, and that kind of gave them a little bit of breathing room, helped, uh, helped separate, and just an impressive performance for him, two INTs, including the touchdown. And JB, instead of our normal kind of regional review after crunch time, we thought we would bring in a friend of the show of several years now and my co-host on the Stag Bowl sideline pregame show the last couple of years, Greg Thomas from D3Football.com, Around the Nation. Uh, I'm a contributor. He's an actual staff member over there. That, that's kind of the distinction. So that means that he gets a big paycheck. I don't. Right, Greg? Um... <laughs> Define big, Frank. <laughs> Greg, uh, we'll set it up here. There are five Pool C bids, which are uh, runner-up bids, basically, to the playoffs. And we'll go region by region, talk about the general results. We've already covered the game by game in crunch time, obviously, in this show. And sort of uh, look at conferences that may have some say in the Pool C equation. Uh, usually, folks, a team that has two losses, now that we're in a 5 uh, bid scenario, usually I say, will not be in consideration. It's one loss, uh, or even technically you could be undefeated and still go in a conference that doesn't have full round robin play. Uh, the MAC is that, and unfortunately I think uh, that possibility is already gone or is, will be gone uh, probably any day now. So just assume that one-loss teams are the ones that we're looking at. There may be a two-loss team, Greg will point out here as we go along, that somebody that could get consideration because they had such a top-heavy schedule and they performed well uh, despite a loss already or something along those lines. So that's how we're going to uh, handle this. And uh, Greg is great with Pool C generally, so not to heap pressure onto him here. Uh, here we go. <laughs> uh, Region 1 up. Uh, the, the one of the teams that we were looking at, uh, Greg, as a possible Region 1 Pool C consideration if they got tripped up was Salve Regina. Well, their trip occurred pretty quickly here in terms of the schedule uh, at the hands of Western New England. The weight of that score, 41-3, to probably knocks them out of consideration even at 9-1, nine, nine I would think, because the quality of your loss matters too sometimes to the committee. What do you think about Region 1. Do we have anybody really, aside from maybe a MAC team, that we could look at as a possible Pool C scenario? Um, possibly Wilkes. I think Wilkes might be in there if they manage to get to the end 9-1, and one, maybe only dropping a game to Delaware Valley. Um, Delaware Valley, if they get upset, might be a team that could be into Pool C. Um, Salve Regina, like you said, is probably the the only other one that I would look at in Region One as a possibility. I think Region One is um, friendly for Salve Regina. Let's get to be the top at large team on the board from Region One, but I don't know that forty one to three versus Western New England gets them there. Plus, you know they had the really nice win against Rowan, but Rowan is not having a great season, and you know that's not going to be as much of a helper as, as maybe it ought to have been for them. 
I'll leave Region 2 to JB to ask about because he might want to ask about a certain team that lost on Saturday that he hopes might still have a Pool C interest in uh, this whole thing. I, I won't name any names. JB, go ahead and talk about Region 2. Yeah, so Greg, um, you know, we, we've had this question uh, come in before from some fans re relating to the variable strengths of whether the, the Centennial or the Liberty League um, is really the best conference in this region. Um, you know, we've seen some of the results with the Empire 8, and I suppose that, um, you know, perhaps a 9-1 a Cortland, say, if they lose to, to Ithaca, um, or eight and two Cortland, I suppose. I guess they'd have to lose to a, an Empire A team. Could theoretically be on the board. But what about this whole Liberty League round robin? You know, Ithaca beats Hobart by a touchdown. RPI is going to play Hobart in a couple of weeks. Union and RPI play at the end of the season. What where do you see sort of things shaking out in in Region Two? Region Two is very competitive. The Liberty League and the Centennial both are going to have some really strong teams for uh, Pool C, the Liberty League in particular, because um, their non-conference record was outstanding. I think 18 and six was what I found. I believe the top five teams in the Liberty League were 18 and one in non-conference play. The strengths of schedule in that league are going to be very, very strong. As long as those top four don't beat each other up, to a point where they yeah. knock each other out. Um, I think you're definitely looking at a situation where a Liberty League team is going to be um, a really strong candidate for Pool C. Um, and certainly Hobart, if they manage to get to the end at 9-1, and one, I think you know they're going to have some ranked wins in there, at least one. Um, another result, you know, Ithaca would be a ranked result as well. That's helpful. Um, you know, Union, if they lose one game somewhere, Frank, who knows where they might lose, um, <laughs> if at all. But they would be a team. <clears throat> and then Ithaca, if they get tripped up in Liberty League play and they beat Court, you know, if they wind up beating Cortland, um, I think they would be almost almost locked in if they got to 9-1 and one with a win over Cortland and now a win over Hobart. Uh, win over Brockport. One of probably Brockport or Cortland are going to be an Empire Eight champion. Um, yeah, you know Ithaca. I believe in 2019 they were an eight and two team with a very strong strength of schedule and some really nice uh, uh, other points in the primary criteria. And the Pool C field in 2019 was so strong that Ithaca never really got a shot. Um, Maybe a little bit differently this year if Ithaca gets eight and two with their with their credentials that I think, and I'm 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 sort of hypothesizing a little bit about where I think Ithaca is going to wind up with some of their primary criteria, but I think they're going to wind up if they do in, wind up in Pool C with a really strong uh, resume. Well, yeah, what we're seeing happen in the Centennial could also happen in the Liberty League eventually here, uh, which is a little bit of infighting causing demolition of Pool C opportunities. And what I'm uh, kind of pointing at is, is, pointing at is, he said, uh, your sinuses <laughs> win against Muhlenberg. 
then Susquehanna coming along and beating your sinus. Now Muhlenberg and Susquehanna have to play at some point. And then there's this team called Johns Hopkins that seems to be a world beater all of a sudden out of nowhere. They have leapt into my top 10 from not even being ranked to start the season. I mean, I've, I've never done that before, Greg, in my uh, years of being on this ballot. And that's happened. But these teams can all basically beat each other up to a pulp that Johns Hopkins may go 10-0, and or one of the Liberty League teams may go 10-0 and that we're talking about, and all the rest of them have beaten each other up to the point that they're two-loss and three-loss teams eventually. Uh, what do you see in the Centennial? Because that's becoming a huge question, and are we entering a phase where the Centennial is going to have to basically sort of hold their breath on that night, even if they have a one-loss team, because the committee doesn't like these 10-team conferences or conferences that only have one out-of-conference uh, game scenario. This has been a conversation before. Will it be a conversation again this year, do you think? Probably. I think, you always, I think you're always riding the line with, those, uh, with conferences that play nine-game round-robins, one-game out-of-conference. Sort of no matter what you do with your out-of-conference game, you're going to wind up in that... 500-ish strength of schedule area, and then depending on who wins your league and what that record is, you're probably looking at an 0-1 or maybe a 1-1 if you're lucky against regional rank, regionally ranked opponents. And so you wind up with a, a, a Pool C resume that doesn't particularly stand out in any, in any way. And you know then it just kind of turns into what, what's being discussed at the committee level and how they like your team. For a team like Susquehanna, they start their season with an annual rivalry game against Lycoming, and their 10-game schedule is locked in. They have the nine centennial games, the game against Lycoming, which is an important rivalry game for them. So they're locked in. That's what that's what their schedule is going to be. Um, but or Sinus beating Muhlenberg does sort of throw a monkey wrench in the in the works there um but i think you could if you do get a scenario with a 10 and 0 centennial champion and a 9 and 1 team that only lost to that champion centennial may have a good chance at a second team as well jb take region three uh our friends of the pack i know are very interested to talk about uh what the implications could be there yeah, in the, in the past, when we've spoken with some of the different reps from the from the pack, they've mentioned that for the most part, they it, it's pool A or bust for them. But this year is a little bit different with the pack having some overlap with the OAC games, Washington and Jefferson beating John Carroll, for instance, um, Westminster playing Mount Union. Uh, could you see a situation in the pack where, let's say, you know, it comes down to a Westminster W and J sort of championship game? Um, and basically the loser of that still making the field? I think so. I think so if the loser of that game is W&J. The, the win against John Carroll is, is huge. Um, as long as John Carroll handles their business going forward, if they get to the end of their season 8-2, and two, I imagine that that would be good enough to get ranked for them in Region 4. That would give W&J a nice little piece of primary criteria. Um, Westminster, if they were to lose to W&J and they have the 48-7 loss to Mount Union, you know, that's that starts to get really, really bubbly. And Westminster would really have to hope that we don't 
have a lot of uh, bid stealing upsets in the last couple of weeks of the season that that really push teams that are pool would be pool C locks out of pool A. Like you want to Westminster would want to see those teams stay in pool A. Like you don't want to see any any weirdness in the WIAC or other places like that. Yes. In the ODAC, I think Randolph Macon, if they get if they get home nine and one, they've lost in Lee to uh, Washington and Lee. If Washington and Lee, you know, goes on and wins the ODAC, Randolph Macon goes to nine and one. They would be they would be in the conversation. And then in in the SAA, I think Birmingham Southern Trinity Center they're going to play. They've got a a little round robin amongst themselves. Barry is kind of hanging out there playing spoiler already at this point, which is a little a little different for Barry. But you could see you could see a, uh, an undefeated. I almost said ten and zero, but Trinity's not going to play ten games. Um, you could see an undefeated SAA champion and a one loss runner up out of that league that I think would yeah, also break out fairly fairly well. I agree with you entirely there. Let's go to region four through six. We'll start with four, uh, and specifically the OAC. Uh, everybody's talking about Baldwin Wallace is almost a de facto nine and one, and would be a de facto Pool C team, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it, there's a lot of chatter about this uh, concept, more than I am comfortable with personally, because we're way too early for this kind of chatter. But let's entertain it for a second. It, would a team like Baldwin Wallace, if they go nine and one in a ten-team conference? be a good pool C fit or uh, is it a Muhlenberg issue or a uh, Centennial Conference type issue I should say yeah so for Baldwin Wallace to get home at nine and one they would have to beat John Carroll which might be the thing that knocks John Carroll out of the ratings which would wind up being bad for Baldwin Wallace not as bad as losing the game obviously but uh, they would lose an opportunity to have a a ranked win um, but yeah, nine and one OAC teams—they sort of fit the same mold as the Centennial, and you would see, you would have the same the same sort of hand wringing conversation about one of those teams with that are nine and one with a five hundred ish strength of schedule, and then a you know a relatively non competitive loss to Mount Union. Um, it I, just, I want to say it one just thing, Greg, if I can. I just want to jump in. And mm -hmm. For people that don't understand why we're going region by region and performing it this way, understand, and Greg brings up a couple uh, points that we should have uh, talked about earlier on for those that are new to this. Two things. One, uh, there are going to be regional rankings, regional rankings in six sets of them now because of the six uh, different uh, regions that have been uh, created instead of four. So those... Regional rankings, if you beat or lose to a team that are, are in the rankings, that is a criterion that could hurt you or help you ultimately, but it's something to take notice of. Number two, when they talk about Pool C bids, the top team remaining from each of those regions is the one that's going to be talked about first, okay? So we'll have six teams being considered simultaneously. One from Region 1, one from Region 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. So we're trying to spot to the degree we can who are some of the teams that could be toward the top of their region because they can block the teams underneath them from ever seeing the light of day on the night that those 
pool C bids are chosen. So that's why we are going in this order or this this way to look at it region by region. And the OAC, you know, could block a team from, let's say, the Heartland or MIAA or NCAC in Region 4, uh, ultimately, depending on how the ratings or rankings look at that point in time. Didn't mean to cut you off. I think we need to give a little bit of uh, guidance to the folks that are new to this uh, across the country because we do have two sets of classes that have never seen this uh, before now, which is unusual. It's true. Yeah, so, you know, I... Baldwin Wallace at nine and one, I think, looks like they would be Region Four's top at-large choice, and then it just becomes a matter of who else is on the board from the other regions. Um, and you're gonna you're gonna have other regions that have similar scenarios and similar teams with similar profiles from ten team leagues, like we said. But like those resumes all kind of blend together. JB, you want to take out Region Five? Yeah, Region 5 is, is kind of interesting because I think, you know, there are clear sort of, <laughs> you know, big names, um, you know, within the ARC, um, such as Central, the CCIW, obviously, as the defending national champs in there, uh, the Midwest Conference uh, and the NACC. You know, Greg, is it pretty much a, you just file away and lock it that if Wheaton wins out and finishes the season, nine and one that they're basically going to uh, you know take the pool C from from this group and that there may or may not really be any other opportunities for uh, another nine and one team in this region to even get a shot so the the interesting thing about Wheaton is that I don't believe that they're gonna finish with a very good strength of schedule um, they played Northwestern from Minnesota in their non-league game that's, that does not help them at all. And it could be a case where Wheaton, we kind of know that Wheaton's going to go into the tournament probably as long as they don't, you know, slip up in the rest of uh, CCIW play. But it could be, a, Wheaton could be in a similar case to North Central two years ago where their resume is such that they aren't picked quickly. And they may be the third or fourth team that gets selected depending on who's available, which would then block other region five teams almost certainly. And there, I don't know that we have a lot of other region five teams that are, that are going to be in the pool C conversation. Wartburg has already lost twice now. So they're, that's going to be difficult for them to overcome. Um, Chicago is maybe a team that if they don't win the Midwest Conference, they could wind up nine and one. They do have a win against Washington University, which is you know a better win than we usually see from from an end up MWC at large candidate. Um, they could get they could get up to the board um, after Wheaton goes in, um, and that's. You know, Lake Forest is another team from the MWC that could wind up with one loss. Um, I don't know that Lake Forest's out-of-conference schedule helps them. Um, I don't know that Lake Forest would be a, a Pool C viable team, but they could get on the board at least. Um, and then Lakeland is the lone undefeated team currently in the NACC. If they lose only once to Aurora, maybe. It just kind of depends on how that... Region 5 committee ranks those teams 
um, when it when it comes down to it. But I do think Whedon probably locked in, even though the resume is going to look a little bit dicey. I think we all can, we've all seen Whedon play. We all, I think we can all agree that they belong in the field of 32 if they get to nine and one. Um, and then it just anybody else who might get nine, might get to nine and one in region five. It just kind of depends on how quickly Wheaton goes in. Now for the controversy of something we brought up in the off season and we thought was going to get solved or resolved and didn't ultimately. And that is region six being as top heavy as it is. And the, the need to keep the ASC in region six for some reason that when it could have easily gone to region three, which would have been teams in the same geographic region, ultimately the South, uh, and the pack, obviously, uh, which uh, might have uh, argued didn't belong in Region 3 in and of itself. But the point being this, when you have the ASC, the MIAC, the WIAC, uh, the Northwest Conference technically too, because what if Whitworth beats Linfield uh, this weekend, you could mm-hmm. have three no. to four very, very viable Pool C candidates coming from Region 6. And that's where the system gets a little messed up, I want to say, because we're supposed to have some distribution throughout the country of strength to the degree we can do it. Now, yeah, obviously, if there's just a lot of good teams in one region, there's a lot of good teams in one region. But if you're moving a conference into a region that possibly doesn't belong with geographically in the first place, logic would say move it to region three, which needed teams anyway, because it's it's a little light in terms of number of teams. Do you see some possible problems here getting created because of the ASC being in Region 6 and what it could do to selection Saturday night or Sunday for this committee, ultimately? Possibly. Um, You know, in the last tournament, we saw, what, one, two, three of our five at-large bids come from what was then the West region. Um, so it's not it's not impossible to get multiple teams from the same if that's how the teams line up, but it does put some pressure on the Region Six uh, rack to slot those teams in in a way that is you know both consistent with the rankings criteria and in a way that is going to maximize their opportunities to get teams in. And so from the ASC, you're going to have Harden-Simmons and Howard Payne, I think, looks like a team that is in in play there, that Howard Payne-Harden-Simmons game is going to be very interesting, and that might be that, – that may well wind up being a, a virtual play-in game. Yeah. You have the, the, the Mayak title game loser – they're going to be in play. Whether it's, um, I think we're, I think we're operating on the assumption that it's going to be St. John's and Bethel playing in that game. Bethel probably for sure. Their division does doesn't quite challenge them the same way that I think St. John's division in the MIAC does. But um, St. John's does appear to be the class of that half of the league as well. So I would expect a St. John's Bethel rematch, and then the title game loser there has to get ranked like you mentioned Whitworth and Linfield are playing this weekend the loser of that game is going to be in play um, particularly if it's Linfield I think Linfield is a team that would be at or near the top of 
of those rankings. Um, down here in Southern California, hasn't 2019 was kind of magical for the Skyac. Um, not so much this year. Cal Lutheran is is having a decent start to their season, but I don't know that there's strength enough in the Skyac to get an at-large team through all of that and into play. Um, and then WIAC, we're going to see what happens between Whitewater, Oshkosh, and Lacrosse. Um, I think those are the three teams really going to battle that thing out for the Pool A, and there's going to be a really strong chance for uh, Pool C there from the WIAC. Almost, barring barring absolute carnage, um, I would expect to see another team from the WIAC in the tournament as well. Greg, do you think that there's a situation, um, since I'm, I remembered the fact that Harden-Simmons' week one game was against Wayland Baptist, which I can't remember, but is probably an NAIA school, that will not count towards the resume um, because it's factored into Division three games. So really, they would be 8-1 and one instead of 9-1. and one. Is there a situation that you could envision where an 8-1 and one Harden-Simmons somehow just doesn't get up to up, up to the board because there are so many nine-win teams possibly ahead of them in this super stacked Region Six. Yeah, I think I think traditionally the committee has sort of looked at eight and one and nine and one as more or less the same thing, and that that game against Wayland Baptist would be secondary criteria. Which, if they were having a hard deciding where to rank Howard or where to rank Harden Simmons. Um, they could look at that as maybe a tiebreaker kind of thing if they were right. trying to decide between uh, Harden-Simmons and Whitworth, let's say. Um, Whitworth also has an out-of-division game. So mm -hmm. you, get, you get more of that in Region 6 than you do elsewhere, as it turns out. Um, I think for Harden-Simmons, I, I think their larger issue currently is that they're not they're not really putting teams away in the way that you yeah. would kind of hope for a team that wants to sort of slam dunk their way into an at large bid. Um, they're they're yeah. giving Harden Simmons playing these close games with McMurray and Solross. They're giving that rack reason to reason to ask questions about whether or not they are one of the best five non qualifiers. Now for the frequently asked questions portion of the program. First off, for people that are out there saying, well, what about my team? They, they did really well two years ago. And so they obviously, with only you know 10 results to go by, uh, th that should play a role in this. And normally the answer is, well, the committee is allowed only to use prior year results if it's a, an undefeated team in terms of teams already selected who gets where in the bracket in terms of hosting rights etc that's the only time past performance can come up what we are not clear about this year greg is whether or not even that rule applies because we didn't have a 2020 playoff bracket to go on and so the previous year's results uh, criteria for you know how we sort the teams may or may not exist that we have not heard conclusively one way or the other if the committee is going to be allowed to use the 2019 results for those purposes and that's important for teams like North Central and Mount Union because mm -hmm. assume both run the table in any other year North Central 
would host Mount Union if they run into each other in the playoffs. This year, we're not guaranteed that necessarily. Mm. My premonition is the committee will try to make sure it happens, but we've got some interesting uh, problems that COVID COVID has created here beyond just the norm, uh, even when we look at bracketing later on. Could you even imagine, Frank, if we have a tournament this year and Mount Union is hosting through the semifinals in a region with in the same region as North Central and North Central has to travel to Mount Union. Can you even imagine? <laughs> Can you even imagine the chatter? It would be <laughs> unprecedented. Of- <laughs> and so let's, uh, th- that's an open question. And Greg, I'm going to leave uh, the last word to you here. Um, a lot of teams are out there saying, well, come on, my team is just playing great football. We're winning by 60 points. We're doing this. We're doing that. Reduce it down to the bare minimum here of advice and thoughts to those teams out there that believe that their 8-2 and two or 7-3 and three record should get them in uh, or at least get them in consideration strongly. What's your thought and what can they do in the future? Uh, seven and three. We've never seen an at-large team go in seven and three, so that's that's sort of a disqualifier. And very rarely do we see eight and two teams go in. I think you know it's it's sort of rotated. It's not what everybody wants to hear, but the only sure way to get into the postseason tournament is to win your conference. Uh, you can win win those games in your conference, and that's how you qualify for the tournament. If you're playing the at-large game, schedule somebody Schedule somebody good. Schedule somebody that you think is likely to be ranked. Schedule a team that you believe is going to win another league and be in the tournament. Um, you know, winning again, not, this is not specifically stated criteria, but I always like to see results against teams that are already in the playoffs. Like, I want to know, did you beat teams that are playoff that are in the playoffs. I think that's important. But really, all you can do is play the game in front of you, win, go 10-0, and 0, and not not leave it up to chance. And uh, Greg, uh, just for everybody to know, uh, you are the ultimate decision maker, right? You, you're the guy that basically <laughs> on that uh, selection Sunday is the one that makes all these decisions and all the cards and letters should go to you, right? Absolutely not. Do not. Uh, please do not tweet me um, after the bracket is released on on Why Selection Sunday. I, did, <laughs> I was not. I was not consulted by that. <laughs> okay, then Pat Coleman's the one that decides it. He has. He has as much influence on the committee as I do. <laughs> <laughs> We want to thank uh, Greg Thomas for joining us, uh, JB, and uh, thank you as always for all the great work you do uh, on the show and uh, getting our prep uh, while I'm on the road and whatnot uh, together. Uh, it looks probably like I'm heading uh, Bostonward for some refing, and that means it's a perfect opportunity this weekend to go back to a place we've been already one time, Endicott, to see Western New England take on Endicott in a very key CCC showdown and so that's probably uh, where I'm going to end up we'll confirm that on our Friday show so uh, stay tuned for that but uh, nonetheless uh, final thoughts on week five as we head toward week six 
You know, it's one of those things where, you know, the, the there were just a lot of exciting finishes. That, that that at the end of the day was what stood out to me. I mean, yeah, where there's some blowouts, of course, there's blowouts every weekend. But for a good portion of these games, there were some really exciting, you know, finishes, close calls here, this and that and the other thing. Um, so that that's what we're here for. We're here for the, the, the drama, the entertainment. Um, you know, what I would I been a little bit happier if my alma mater may have you know hung on for the for the win down at Ithaca sure but hey you know you got to tip your cap to coach Swanstrom and the Bombers they executed their game plan a little better their their quarterback made the plays when he had to and their defense made the stops when they had to also so uh, it's going to just keep things interesting for you know all these different regions when you have these close calls Pool A is obviously the access point into um, the tournament as a guarantee. And then the rest is going to come up to a little bit of chance, a little bit of luck, a little bit of who, who you played, how well, and all sorts of formulas. And we can get more into that um, with Professor Thomas sometime in the future. I'm uh, very interested to see uh, how the Empire 8 turns this weekend. We'll have more on that big game coming up on Friday. Uh, on our uh, preview show. Maybe we'll even grab a guest from uh, that uh, game. If we, if we talked to the Brackport side already. Uh, maybe we'll uh, try to get some Cortland activity here on our show. We have not talked that much about them, but they've been winning and winning big throughout this season. So big game coming up for them uh, this weekend and a lot of big games throughout the country. Week 6 coming up. Thanks for joining us. So to hear about Week 5, we'll see you Friday.